0: Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, Go to Institute.org slash Rome. That's Institute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at tomisticinstitute.org. Today I'm going to talk more specifically about humility, what it is, and how it comes about as Thomas understands it. And, uh, you know, there's no real, I don't think, real merit in understanding how Thomas thinks of humility and the relationship between the fear of God uh, unless his understanding of those ideas are rooted in scripture and i want to suggest to you this morning that uh, that what Thomas has to say about these things humility on the one hand fear of God on the other will will help you to understand uh, many passages in, in Scripture that, that speak to this uh, set of topics. <clears throat> but let's begin with just a couple of quotations here. My, what I want to show you first is the way in which Thomas's ideas are rooted not only in, in Scripture but in the interpretation of Scripture as it's attested in his predecessors. So I won't go through all these, but let's just, let's just begin with a, with a couple. So we have here in the, the sayings of the fathers, that a certain brother asks Abacronius, how can a man become humble? Okay. This is a young desert monk asking an elder of the desert, how you can become humble. And the old man, speaking in the simple language of the desert, says only through the fear of God. Uh, this this notion is attested and then tra- transmitted, mediated to the Latin West, principally through John Cassian, though we find it independently also in Augustine. Who, uh, but Cassian says here in the third quotation, "The fear of the Lord." is the beginning of our salvation in its keeper. For through this, when fear has penetrated a man's mind, humility is acquired. You find the same idea embedded in the rule of St. Benedict, which is the, for all intents and purposes, the founding charter of Western monasticism. You find this idea, namely, that fear Generates humility in some sense in Bernard of Clairvaux and his, his contemporaries, and you find it also in Thomas Aquinas, who says, now, quote here, as it says in Sirach, chapter 10, verse 4, the beginning of the pride of man is to turn away from God. This is to wish not to be subject to God, and, so, and is opposed to fear. Filial fear, which reveres God. I'm going to, I'm, now I'm going to gloss these terms. Continuing. And so fear excludes the beginning of pride, on account of which it's given to counter pride. Nevertheless, it does not follow that it is the same as the virtue of humility, but that it is, is its beginning or its principle. And then Thomas goes on to say something about the relationship between the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the theological virtues and other virtues, uh, which is fascinating, but, but shouldn't occupy us today. Okay. A couple of key terms here and you, if you have a pencil or pen, you might circle them. The first is, is filial fear. When Thomas is speaking here of fear, he's distinguishing the fear of God from more familiar more familiar kinds of fear and he inherits a conception of fear that includes min- various kinds. One of them uh, which is which will be immediately familiar to you is what Thomas calls worldly fear. This is the fear of, of the loss of honor, the loss of material goods, it's the, uh, it's the, the fear we have, insofar as we love inordinately the things of this world. There's, there are other kinds of fear. Thomas is speaking here of filial fear, and he identifies that with the notion of fear that we encounter in the Bible. Now, this is a strange, this is a strange conjunction of terms, because we typically take fear to be a negative thing. Right. We say that, so what we fear is things we take to be evil. This immediately raises a question, how can we fear God, who is goodness itself, the font of all goodness, in whom there is no shadow of turning, no evil, no defect? So here's Thomas's solution. He says... The kind of fear that is, filial, that is the fear of God, filial fear, the kind of fear that God gives us as a gift is the kind of fear that a child has with respect to his or her father. The object of this fear is not the father himself. It's the prospect of being separated from one's father. Okay, So Thomas is thinking here of an ideal relationship between a father and, and a child, where, in which the father loves the child for his own sake, and the child is the, is the recipient of, of well-ordered love. There's a kind of safety in the, being in the presence of one's father, a sense of familiarity, of belonging, being at home. And, uh, what we fear if things are as they should be with respect to our parents, our father specifically, isn't that we would, isn't our father himself insofar as he's good, it's being divided, being separated. And most especially it's being separated by something that we ourselves have done. We when we love others, not just our parents, but in our friends more generally, we we fear, among other things, the loss of their friendship. And Thomas is talking here about this kind of fear. It's this kind of fear that he says excludes pride, it casts it out. It's incompatible with it and generates humility. And today I'm going to talk about, about how that this works. And to do that, I have to give you one, uh, w- one more concept right from the beginning that I'm, that you're welcome to ask questions about. According to Thomas, filial fear is a gift of the Holy Spirit, like charity, hope, like faith, like the cardinal virtues that are infused along with those virtues, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are habits. They are habitual dispositions that incline you to a certain kind of activity. In this instance, What distinguishes the gifts from the virtues more generally is that the gifts render one easily movable or amenable to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And all you need to know about that right now is simply that Thomas is saying and takes that scripture tells us that the kind of fear by which we revere God as our father, and fear to be separated from him is not simply something we do, but something that God does in us. It's, it's, there's this thing called fear that God gives us by which we become responsive to God's own movement in our life uh, in reverence to God. Okay? All right. So that's where we're headed. So let's talk first about humility and then we'll, we'll return to this notion of fear and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is a passage that Thomas discovers in Orieto. It had basically been lost to the Latin West. It's unattested, as far as I can tell, in the Middle Ages and prior to its appearance in Thomas's, in Thomas's uh, well, first in uh, a work called the Catena uh, Aurea. But here we see it also in the Summa. Thomas finds there in the papal archives in Orvieto uh, this passage from Origen that says, while expositing Luke, that in the scriptures, humility is properly preached as one of the virtues, for the Savior says, learn from me, I'm meek and lowly in heart. He's, now he's expositing here the virtue, uh, the humility of Our Lady, Okay. So the, he's establishing here, whatever else humility is, it, it is indeed a virtue. Scripture speaks of it uh, in, in these terms. Then Origen goes on to say, with reference to the same passage, if you want to hear the name of this virtue, how, is it, how it is also named by the philosophers, Listen to the same humility that God regards, which they call mitriotes. That's a Greek term. It means measurement or moderation. Okay, this might seem puzzling at first. What Origen seems to be doing is suggesting that humility belongs in some way to moderation or temperance. Now, how's that so? Okay. To, to, to begin understanding this, you have to recall uh, briefly what, what temperance is. It's a cardinal virtue. It's the cardinal virtue that perfects your wanting power, your concusable power. It moderates passions pertaining to pleasures of touch, principally. So these are the pleasures of the bedroom, the pleasures of the table. And other pleasures that are, that tend to compel us um, less vehemently. So long as you grant, and I, I think you surely will, that we human beings on this side of Eden, here and now, in the world as it actually is, we tend to want more pleasure, uh, more pleasure from food, from wine more pleasure from sex than is than we ought to and as soon as you grant that that we that on the whole we generally tend toward excess in these matters you you see the the beauty and the the function of temperance in human life temperance and the virtues that are connected with it helps us constrain our, the the pleasures that and the other passions that are provoked by certain bodily goods. Okay. It puts a, as Thomas says, it puts a check on them. It curbs them. And once you've seen that, you can see that there are a whole host of virtues that are formally similar to temperance in this way. So think of, think for example, of gentleness, that other, that other virtue, that origin attributes to Jesus and, Jesus himself says, learn of me because I'm meek and humble. Meekness is like temperance. It doesn't restrain pleasure, it restrains anger. Uh, uh, There are many other virtues like this. One of them, according to Thomas, and he takes it that Origen has already divined this, is the virtue of humility. It, too, is a kind of restraint a kind of pressing back a kind of curbing. What's it put a check on? It puts a check on desire. So it's a virtue of the will in the same way that pride is a vice of the will. In particular, Thomas concludes that humility checks uh, the movement of hope, namely uh, hope insofar as it tends toward great things. Now, this requires a bit of a qualification, okay? We talk about hope, the virtue of hope, which is a virtue that God gives. It's a theological virtue. God himself is the object of this virtue. It's the virtue by which God strengthens us to pursue God in hope of being united with God. But there's a a more basic conception of hope that Thomas uses and elaborates in, in the Summa. And that's the kind of hope that that emerges in our everyday lives with respect to things that are difficult. Okay, you, you, So I, I don't hope right now that I'm going to go to mass because I'm pretty sure I'm going to go to mass in about an hour or an hour and a half. There's no, there are no great difficulties. There's, you know, maybe if there were a fire or something in the stairwell, you know, I might wonder, am I going to get there or not? The point is, is that we, we, we do not hope except for uh, when we encounter things that are difficult or dangerous. Okay. We are, we, we reach out, we tend toward things we desire things that seem difficult that seem uh, attainable but uh, also um, riddled with uh, with obstacles this is hope and thomas is saying that humility constrains a specific kind of hope it's the hope that we have for greatness for great things Hope in this sense is an affection, okay? It's a, it's a, you won't, you don't want to call it an emotion uh, because, well, this is a word of uncertain origin. Uh, it's a, it's a movement of the will. Okay. Since our affections specifically our hope for things that are beyond our reach, things that are too great for us, things that are beyond our capacity tends toward a kind of excess in virtue of our, our fallenness. We need a virtue to check this inordinate desire. And that's what humility does. Okay. There's the first part. Here's the second. Thomas speaks of what he calls the rule and root of humility. Humility tempers and restrains the soul, lest it tends immoderately to things beyond its reach. This raises a question, how one determines what is a legitimate object of hope and what is an excessive object of hope. What can we actually hope in? What can you want? How are you going to determine that humility insofar as it's a moral virtue has to be regulated, ruled okay by judgments of, of reason. And this then leads to the question, how do we come to determine for each of us What considerations would go toward limiting or constraining our desires? Thomas gives the following uh, explanation. He says, it belongs properly to humility that a man restrain himself, lest he tend toward things that are above him. For this, it's necessary that one know in what way in what way one falls short in relation to that which exceeds his power. And so the knowledge of one's own defects belongs to humility as a kind of rule guiding the appetite. So although humility is a perfection of desire, perfection of the will, it turns out that it depends in in a very important way on a clear vision of one's own defects. The, in the Latin here word is defectus. And I want to talk about that term for a second because Thomas packs a lot into this one term. Okay. At times Thomas speaks of defectus as a kind of absence or a lacking. So for example, The human intellect, in comparison to the angelic, or to say nothing of the divine intellect, exhibits a kind of defect. There is something, there is a marked absence of intellectual capacity in human beings compared to angelic and divine intelligence. We, In that respect, there is a kind of defect. It's a natural defect. It's not a, it's just a, a happy fact about human existence, it's the way we are. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> synonyms for defectus in this sense might be rendered as a kind of limitation. Uh, Thomas also uses the term in a negative or privative sense to designate defects that that identify a kind of moral failure of, of some Kind so, for example, he speaks of the common defects resulting from the fall. Things like hunger, thirst, disease, and death. We we tend to think of death as something natural. Okay, but the testimony of Scripture and the teaching of the Church is that death is a is a is a a kind of defect. It's something that it comes downstream of, of sin. It's, it, it's unnatural in that respect. He also speaks of the wounds of sin. It's a technical term. He calls them the, calls, ignorance, malice, weakness, fear. He calls these wounds of sin and they're common to human beings, just in virtue of being human beings. So we all, exhibit ignorance, kind of tendency toward vice, uh, certain weaknesses, inordinate fear. And this is just a part of our common inheritance in light of the fall. He also speaks of proper defects or defects that belong to specific persons. So in addition to all these defects that we just have in virtue of being human, there are the defects that each of us acquire all on our own. You know, I I mean, certain of my vices, you know, are not present in many of you and vice versa. You know, we all have our own individual and particular defects. And what I'm suggesting here is in this passage, Thomas means to include all these different kinds of limitation, these uh, shortcomings, these failures, these vices, all of this. What Thomas is saying is then if the rule of humility is knowledge of one's own defects, then humility depends in an important way on an understanding of the multiple ways in which one lacks the perfection that God intends for human beings and that we find fully in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we're entirely bereft of good, okay? In fact, uh, it's very often neglected, however, that according to Thomas, all of our virtue both acquired and infused, so the kind of virtue you can get through your own industry and the kind of virtue that you can only get through God. All of this, according to Thomas, is in the last analysis, not our achievement, but God's. And this points to a certain reckoning that lies beneath humility. It's a reckoning with our own Creatureliness first and foremost, you know, we are not gods. We're not, we're not angels. We're fragile fallen creatures. We're susceptible to illness, injury, loss. The effects of original sin do not incline us to flee every evil and pursue every good that we can and should and the balms of grace as wondrous as they are in this life do not entirely insulate us from temptation or from demonic assault we're not always wise we're not always just we're not always courageous we're not always temperate even if we prefer to think of ourselves in these terms or project a kind of uh, moral stability Our wounded condition does not in general permit us to govern ourselves with the degree of confidence we project. So we're not entirely good, but we're wounded, even now. This points to a distinction that Thomas makes. He says that two things can be considered in a human being. The first is that which is of God and the second is that which is of man. And everything, I'm quoting, now what pertains to defect, he goes on to say, belongs to man. But whatever pertains to salvation and perfection belongs to God. So here's what that means. Everything good and beautiful about you. And there are, I'm looking at your, this is a handsome crowd and uh, an agreeable uh they're not too agreeable group of people and you're 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 lovely <clears throat> and all of that that loveliness is a gift of god everything else is kind of your fault <laughs> it's the rest of it Everything good about you is is something God has given you and nurtured in you and will continue to to nurture in you. And the rest of it it goes under this big, broad umbrella defectus. And the point here is just this. It matters a lot. It matters a lot that we become aware of our own defects. It matters a lot that we become aware of our frailties, our limits and shortcomings, our laziness, our dereliction, our sin, and our vice, lest we falsely claim what's not ours or aim for what's beyond our capacity. You know, I, I wouldn't dare try to dunk a basketball because I can't do it. And I'd probably get hurt. I Probably, I mean, it probably would if I really try, kept trying, I, I, I can't do it. There's just stuff I can't do, okay? The limitations that keep me from a dunking a basketball, however, are, are very different than the limitations that keep me from doing all the good I might or avoiding all the evil I should, okay? And we need to become aware of this so that the Lord can work humility in us and we can know better how to ask for God's help with all of the things that God has given us to do with his help. So Thomas is saying here, in the second passage, the humility is essentially established in the appetite, according to which one restrains the impulse of his soul, so as not to tend inordinately to great things. Then he goes on, but its rule, this is what we've been talking about, is in knowledge, namely so that one does not take oneself to be above what one is. Now listen to what he says next. And the principle or the beginning and the root of both, of both of these things is the reverence that one has for God. Now that is an interesting turn. You might think that what Thomas is urging here is a kind of introspection where we, be, where we begin to you know, take stock take inventory of all of our defects. And, you know, so you might think he's promoting a kind of uh, a kind of self infatuation, a kind of, uh, um, kind of solipsistic analysis. And that's, ex- that's exactly what he's not suggesting. When he says that the root of both the constraint of the will Okay, That belongs to humility and the knowledge of one's own defects by which humility is regulated. When he says that these things have their beginning and root in reverence, what he's saying is that these things, the constraint of desire and the self knowledge by which we constrain desire for things beyond us, is rooted in reverence. And now we have to unpack what's that mean? What's reverence? It's a very common term. We use it indiscriminately. It has a, a, a kind of pious ring to it. it. However, Thomas has in mind something very specific. So what's reverence? What are its effects? <clears throat> reverence, according to Thomas, is a kind of fear that's attached or yoked to love. Okay, and the best I can do to, to give you a couple examples. Uh, well, let's let's try this. Uh, think of the last time you were you really saw a thunderstorm. I mean, a downpour, lightning. You know, have you ever seen lightning that just you, know, you didn't know it could be that color? Okay, and. When the, it's like the skies are opening up and the the clap of the thunder you feel it in your bones, kaboom! Right, and it's it's scary, but it's also wondrous. And the conjunction of these two things, the the if there's the allure on the one hand of the storm. And flight on the other hand from the storm that works a per- peculiar uh, moment in our lives. I don't know if you're like me at least. On the one hand, my wonder, my draw toward the storm will take me from the family room to the front porch. But it won't take me much further than that. <laughs> okay? So reverence according to Thomas is is a kind of love, a kind of a kind of Being pulled towards something while simultaneously shrinking back at its majesty. Okay? Have you ever you've looked at a mountain and thought, wow, how majestic, and then had the thought, I would definitely die if I ever (laughs) tried to climb it. Okay? It'll get you close, but it's the recognition of its greatness that works in us a simultaneous recognition of our own littleness. Thomas says to admire or revere happens when by the consideration of such greatness, a man shrinks back into his own littleness. Remember that passage from Isaiah six, where Isaiah is caught up in the throne room and he sees the train of the Lord's robe and he sees God's majesty. And in that same moment says, woe is me i'm an unclean man you know this is amazing i'm not i'm in trouble i need help (laughs) make me clean that's reverence and the thing to know here is that reverence is something that we cannot by ourselves simply conjure It's something, insofar as God becomes the object of our reverence, that God works in us. Okay, not without us, mind you, okay? But in us and with us, with our participation, with our consent. By linking the gift of by linking reverence to fear. and then calling fear a gift of the Holy Spirit, Thomas is saying that that we come to revere God in specific moments and more habitually through God's initiative, through God's own prompting. Thomas takes it that the gifts our habitual dispositions that enable, enable one to be, and here I'm quoting, acted upon by the Holy Spirit in such a way that one also acts. It follows that the shrinking back, characteristic of divine reverence, insofar as it's elicited by fear, is an affection that can be produced neither solely by one's own efforts, nor can it simply be imposed from without. It's rather, At once, something we do and something done to us. You might have several questions here, but the crucial thing for our purpose is to see that by reverence, we come to a deeper sense of our own frailty. That's how it's brought about. And this is brought about through God's prompting. I'm quoting here. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are certain habitual perfections of the powers of the soul by which they are rendered easily movable by the Holy Spirit now this is what filial fear does, insofar as we revere God Himself. Okay, let me respond here to a couple of objections or a couple of worries you might be having at this point. Uh, the first is that, however idiosyncratic this might seem, this is this belongs to Thomas's moral thought just as much as the philosophical distinctions that we more readily associate with him. Okay, I'm not drawing here from the bizarre outskirts of Thomas's thought. This This is central to his thinking. So we see already in his commentary on Isaiah, where he alludes to the smallness of knowledge, the recognition of one's own littleness that comes to us in the context of contemplation, the recognition of God's majesty by which we, we marvel at God's excellence and come to be more aware of our own imperfections. He says later in the commentary in Ephesians, here's a quote for the more man is affected or drawn toward God and knows him the more he sees him as greater and himself as lesser, nay, almost nothing in comparison with God. The more you come to know and love God, okay, the more you come to recognize God's majesty, the more you come to see and conform your um, desires to your own littleness. What Thomas adds in the Summa to these earlier insights is simply the idea that this is something that happens in us, namely our being drawn toward God in this way is something that God himself um, takes the initiative in. Okay, the more important point here that I want to emphasize is that Thomas evidently takes himself in these passages to be describing something that you, the reader, can experience, even if only fleetingly. Okay. I'm talking, I'm talking here about an experience and here's how, here's my best description of it. It's a felt sense of awe that seizes us in the recognition of God's majesty. Such moments cannot be summoned at will. They either come about through the spirits prompting or not at all, but so long as they last, we're at once made acutely aware of God's immeasurable perfection and everything feeble and fading in our creaturely selves. At once, we're enabled by the Spirit's promptings to see the great chasm between what we are, really, and what we pretend to be. That's a good thing. So with these preliminaries in place, you can begin to see just how vital the experience of reverence is to the virtue of humility. And I wanna point now to uh, another passage that brings this, uh, brings this all together. And then I wanna look briefly at, a, at Thomas's exposition of a uh, pericope in the book of Job to kind of tie this all up so you can see how this works, okay? Here, Thomas is saying in this passage uh, under uh, the effects of reverence, it's the third passage, see, he says, In checking the presumption of hope, the chief ratio, I'll come back to that term, the chief ratio is taken from divine reverence from which it happens that a man does not attribute to himself more than befits him according to the station to which he's been assigned by God. You see that connection there? Go, moving on, hence humility especially seems to entail the subjection of man to God And this is why Augustine in the Sermon of the Lord on the Mount attributes humility by which he understands the spirit of poverty to the gift of fear by which a man should should revere God. What's this word ratio mean here? Well, it's notoriously difficult to get into English. Uh, Here, Thomas is using the term to designate a kind of vantage, a perspective a way of seeing something. What is that vantage? What's that perspective? From the vantage of human reason, it can be seen as contrary to the natural order to set one's hopes on goods beyond one's reach. You know, don't try to dunk a basketball if you can't jump. That, that's something that human reason can divine just by itself. That, however, is not the the main ratio or perspective on account of which humility checks presumption. According to Thomas, the perspective from which humility constrains hope is a perspective that, as he says here, is taken from divine reverence. It is, in other words, this way of being affected or drawn toward God by God through the offices of filial fear that supplies the perspective from which we come to see ourselves truly And so check our presumptive aspirations. That is why Thomas says here that humility, or later on he says, I can give you the quotation later, he literally just says, humility is caused by reverence. Humility is caused by reverence. Let's tie it together with a quick example from Job. So Thomas says uh, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, with reference to Job, again, He says that the more intimate or familiar one becomes with God through love and contemplation, the more one esteems his excellence, the more one reveres him and considers himself inferior. And then he quotes here Job 42. I've heard you with the ear, but now my eyes see you. And so I check myself and do penance and dust and ashes. Okay, listen to what Thomas says. At first glance, this passage might seem quite unremarkable. Thomas is linking up uh, love and contemplation here with, um, and he's suggesting that in some way, the increase in love and contemplation affects a kind of uh, uh, self-recognition that then precipitates a kind of check on one's own desire. Then he quotes Job, and he's doing in doing this, he's he's pointing us to an exemplary scene. All right. So this is Job 42. This is the end of Job. This is Job's response to God who has greeted him from a whirlwind. Okay? A whirlwind, mind you, is like that storm I was describing. You know, oh a, a whirlwind that speaks <laughs> is uh, especially interesting and especially Especially liable to be dangerous. We have this exemplary scene of a man. He's clinging to the dust. He's on the ground. And he's crying out to God in a moment of simultaneous wonder and self castigation. I heard about you, but now my eyes see you. And now that I know you like this, I see myself. In the commentary on Job, Thomas interprets the scene as an illustration of moral transformation. Through divinely given inspiration, Job has glimpsed the majesty of God, and in that same moment, he has come to see his own defects as though for the first time. Thomas goes on to say, this pericope, where Thomas, said, where Job says, I've, I'd heard of you, but now may I see you, and now I repent in dust and ashes. This pericope, he says, shows by what means Job was changed. He changed was able to see, that is, through an encounter with God's majesty, the own interior movements of pride uh, that uh, that were previously unrecognizable to him. In the exposition of the passage, Job insists that these conditions bring about a new perspective from which Job sees, sees himself. Quoting now, Now the more one considers the righteousness of God, the more fully he sees his own fault, And that is why Job says here, therefore, I check myself. The pericope then concludes by making manifest in what way Job has changed. Thomas goes on to say that Job has grown in humility and so repents in dust and ashes. Now, that's not a full-blown illustration of the dynamics that I'm trying to illustrate from Thomas's other writings, but it does, I think, vividly point to this connection, right? Mm -hmm we are we are all of us beleaguered more or less by the, by temptations of pride we need humility to contend with this if we're going to get humility it's something god has to give us and the way in which god gives us humility and grows it in us is through an encounter with god and I thought this was a way of wrapping up some of our discussion here, Uh, not least as we look toward um, the Mass where God indeed meets us. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thamisticinstitute.org slash donate.